Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, strap in your carbon neutral seatbelts and all those new ACCC induced fears on greenwashing by brands, because if my guest today is correct, none of that is really going to matter soon. Product carbon footprinting is about to be usurped by enterprise carbon footprinting, which in a nutshell means working out the sustainability and green credentials of individual products is too hard and risky and is likely to be downgraded in ESG strategies by business. Why? Well, part of the reason is that the EU is about to do to ESG and net zero reporting globally what it did to privacy and GDPR four years ago, and marketing is likely to be sidelined through it all. In a nutshell, the EU next year will put new reporting and compliance standards around corporate carbon emissions, and the full impact of this looming regulation is landing hard with CEOs and CFOs, in North America particularly, but now it's moving to the rest of the world. And that's because any company selling into Europe that doesn't comply with the new regime will have to halt their Euro business or face fines and even criminal charges. That means the EU's standards go global as a default, much like GDPR. And Ari Alexander, the lead on Salesforce's Net Zero Cloud, who I spoke to in San Francisco this month, says companies are starting to freak out, at least those that have been taking a wait and a see approach on their ESG positions. Ari is loaded with the latest on ESG and net zero, and this one is an eye-opening conversation. So welcome, Ari. How about a fast overview first on the challenge organisations are facing with their net zero and ESG programs? Uh, it's getting pretty messy and complex, isn't it? I read somewhere recently that much ESG and net zero reporting is still using manual spreadsheets and it remains quite antiquated, but it's now moving at light speed, I think. People and companies are quite worried. In fact, very, very worried. Welcome, Ari. Give us your thoughts. Absolutely. It's great to be with you today. Uh, net zero cloud has customers across over a dozen industries and over a dozen different markets. Um, This is a horizontal solution that applies to our customers, regardless of what industry and what their segment is. So we see our customers interested in conversations around ESG from across the world in every major industry. How long has it been going? It's pretty new, isn't it? Yeah, we started this about three years ago after launching a solution internally for our own sustainability team. And we decided to bring that product to market because the challenges we faced are common challenges that our customers face. And so, have you been there from the get-go, Ari? I have. Right, I and started so, this business. You started, and I so did. just very quickly, then, because I'm going to divert already. Your background: How did you get to being? Uh, and you do call it ESG in the US, and part of the, part of Salesforce's whole program here. It is ESG is the umbrella term you use. That's right. Yeah, ESG, uh, sustainability. Those things are often used interchangeably, and people mean a lot of different things by them. Um, and we'll get into that a, a bit in the conversation. Um, in terms of my own background, uh, after graduate school, I spent time in the nonprofit sector and in the public sector. I came over to Salesforce 11 years ago. And uh, for a while, I was working on partner strategy, alliances, industry strategy. And I ended up deciding I wanted to go back to that meaningful work that I did 
prior to my time at Salesforce that was really connected to making the world a better place and find businesses at Salesforce that could really accelerate change through and with our customers using the really powerful platform we have under the leadership of Mark as a really unique CEO who knows that business has really an opportunity to change the world that that no one else really does. And so I decided to help us start our philanthropy cloud business many years ago, and then more recently to help us start our net zero cloud business uh, to guide our com- our customers in conversations around ESG. So um, how about a fast uh, sort of overview then, Ari, on, on the challenge organizations are facing with their net zero ESG programs. It's pretty messy out there and complex, isn't it? Um, there's a lot of reporting. I read something that you've done somewhere where a lot of the reporting and, and data capture is, is still almost spreadsheets. It was it was kind of really old and antiquated. Is that what was happening even a couple of years ago? That's right. I mean, the world faces an enormous challenge. The clock is ticking. We're in an emergency. And each of our customers, every organization, is a part of trying to figure out how to respond to that challenge, what everyone's role is in that global challenge. It can often feel like it's so large and enormous. What can any one organization do? But more and more, every organization, every company and every industry is looking at itself in the mirror and trying to figure out what's our role, what's our place in this story, what's our impact, and what's our plan for the years ahead. And then when they do that, they all realize they've got an enormous data challenge on their hand. This is really complicated math requiring data coming in from all kinds of places with all kinds of calculations to know even where you are, let alone where you're going. So the drivers for this for many corporates is probably as much about fear of being sort of shamed or busted uh, as it is about some goodwill. What's the mix there? Is it sort of, you know, certainly in Australia, you know, there's a lot of companies that are driven by, we should do this because otherwise we're going to get our hands slapped, perhaps. Yeah, there are a lot of really interesting simultaneous phenomena going on right now. One is there's a move toward regulation around the world. For the last 20 years, people that have reported data around this have tended to do so out of the goodness of their heart, maybe some marketing attention, maybe some differentiation, not a whole lot of auditability or consistency across how they did it. That's changing. There's major regulation coming out of the EU with CSRD next year, out of the SEC in the United States, one or two years behind, as there has been in Australia for some time. Another pressure is from the supply chain. There are suppliers asking their vendors, what are you doing around this? Another one is from their customers. Customers say, saying, we want to do business. We want to buy goods and services from companies that take this really seriously. And then finally, there's investor pressure, right? People are starting to talk about valuations being determined on the basis of this kind of data. That's a lot of stuff that a very small team that typically is paid to think about this at a company is wrestling with to try to figure out, is our house in order? Where are we? Where are we going? What do we need to do right now? So we're hearing about all of that from our customers. And so typically, who are the big influences in the organization for ESG programs and what you're doing at Salesforce? It started off, is it sort of the CSR or corporate affairs area? Is it marketing or is it completely different? Is it a brand new function? Yeah, it's an amazing question because it's rapidly changing and there's inconsistency from company to company around the world. There are people involved who, who do sustainability for a living. There are people involved from the CFO's office, from IT. Increasingly here at Dreamforce, we're hearing CIOs with the remit to drive the sustainability transformation at their company. We didn't see that one or two years. 
years ago. We're seeing that all over in our customer meetings here. We're seeing people that have been looking at this from an HR perspective, who are thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and equality initiatives. People look at this from a philanthropic standpoint, corporate foundations and corporate giving, employee engagement. So there are lots of folks at the table. This is increasingly going to look like a risk-driven exercise on the defensive side, a marketing-driven exercise on the kind of offensive positioning side, but also the, the core tenets of a successful business in the future are going to be based on how you navigate this transformation and this transition. So increasingly, other members of the C-suite are waking up to the business opportunity of being a winner rather than a loser as we go through this transition. What does a program look like that might be driven by marketing versus IT versus HR? And I take your point, I guess, in, in employee engagement and even being a talent magnet, if you like, for the younger set, they, it's a sort of almost a, a ground zero play, isn't it? It's table stakes if you don't, you're not sort of got responsibility happening in, in your social environmental governance, then they're not really interested. So there's a whole, to your point, there's a lot of different influences, but say a company that's got marketing driving it versus yeah. HR uh, versus IT. Mm -hmm. uh, is there a difference in how these programs, what's the personality and shape of them? Yeah, absolutely. In general terms, we see marketing driven by storytelling. We see, you know, how to get your message, the position your company has in your industry with your consumers and where to put sustainability in that story. When we talk about IT, we tend to think about how do systems talk to one another to get the data in such a place that one could report out on it, have it be auditable, have it get up to the quality of financial data. And how does all that happen behind the scenes to make that data available to internal stakeholders as well as to the rest of the world? And we tend to talk to subject matter experts who are deep in what does all this data mean? They tend to be very focused on the precision in the calculations. Mm -hmm. What are the emissions factors of this kind of cement and that kind of ink? And so they all bring very different kinds of things to the table and they're all quite relevant to how companies navigate the waters ahead. Does that mean there's, is there sort of a, an inconsistency in what's reported, monitored, measured, and so forth? If you're talking about, you know, the density of cement or whatever, the cement versus the storytelling and trying to engage with your consumer market or your customers, does it mean the, that what's being reported is very different? Yes, absolutely. We're going through a dramatic transformation right now. This is the end of a chapter that was about 20 years uh, in the making where this was really the Wild West of what you said and whether anyone held you accountable for it. We're turning the page now to really a compliance-driven apples-to-apples kind of exercise. When we think about financial data today, we don't really question what does this number mean relative to another company's report of that same metric. That's where sustainability data is going. It's a moment of increased standardization. And that's happening on a global scale. You, many of us wish it had happened sooner, but it's finally starting to happen. And that's going to make it easier for everyone to speak in a common language around the world and across industries. And is that because the regulatory regimes are aligning too then? Is that why you're getting consistency or is what's forcing the, the alignment globally? Yeah, all of these forces are starting to come together. The need for standardization that everyone could feel, the fact that regulation has been a long time coming, the fact that financial institutions were trying to figure figure out what to make of this whole phenomenon, how to think about where capital plays a role in this kind of data and how to integrate it more holistically and in, into the way we think and do business together. 
And the pressures that are coming from employees, customers, suppliers, everybody was pulling in the same direction towards what are we talking about? What does sustainability even mean? What is ESG? Can you even agree on what a good target should be or a good goal should be? And that process has been maturing over many years and it's finally starting to get towards a common language. So there's something, for example, called Science-Based Targets Initiative, which is sort of the gold standard for companies to set targets that are meaningful in global terms. Like what does each company need to do to be in line with what the world needs to do to kind of do their part? And that's what's starting to happen from a regulatory standpoint as well. And the Europeans are really leading that global conversation right now. And the SEC and, and the US side is sort of shortly a fast follower. So you're talking about SEC in terms of the Security Exchange Commission. So it's the finance side that's pushing it here, the, the regulatory regime here? Absolutely. The overall phenomenon around regulation is driven by getting sustainability data up towards the level of financial data so that it can be treated with the same rigor when it's audited, when it's compared in what we're used to in reporting other kinds of numbers. And that's going to be a game changer for the conversation around sustainability, which has, has historically been much more say what you want, tell it how you want, and good luck out in the market with how they respond to it and whether they call you out for it or ask you tough questions right. about it. Right, right. And so just goes back to going back to your earlier point there, Ari, though, if you were saying, you know, what you see at the moment is different parts of the organization are driving ESG and net zero ambitions, marketing, storytelling, IT, precision, et cetera. These new rules, these new standards, like marketing will have to align to whatever the, the requirements are to report and the same with with IT or HR, it doesn't necessarily mean they can go off and do their own thing anymore. Is that what's going to happen? That's absolutely correct. I would say some years ago, marketing could be in a leadership position without necessarily talking to finance or IT or sustainability when it came to crafting the message around sustainability. Those days are over. People have seen in these positions, companies try to do the right thing and get called out for greenwashing or whatever the phrase is locally. And that's made a lot more people reticent to go out there with bold claims about, you know, this product is green, or if you do that, it's a, it's a sustainable thing to do. Those claims are getting questioned in the public square. And part of that is because of this standardization around data. Well, what exactly do you mean? Did you account for this? What about the bigger picture within which your story is lacking that context? And so you're very much correct that today what's happening is the people that are really focused on the calculations, on the numbers, on the audit trail, on the comprehensiveness of the data, they're driving that conversation forward and the marketers have to respond to those changing conditions. You talked about um, the Europeans driving a lot of this regulatory alignment. Is it similar to what we see with GDPR? They, they, almost the Europeans are doing the same thing that they've done in data and privacy that they are doing in ESG and, and net zero. Is there a sort of a, a parallel there? We don't know for sure how this will play out, but my prediction is that it will follow the same script, which is that the European Union will have requirements and expectations that companies above a certain size amount revenue in the EU will have to account for their value chain or their supply chain emissions. And that's really where most of the environmental impact comes, not from your direct operational control, but from your supply chain. And the fact that the EU will require reporting about that Whereas the SEC has not yet come through on the details of their expectations there. And some people predict that they will fall short of requiring that scope three or value chain set of data. But if you do business in the EU, you will be required to be at that standard that the Europeans are, are putting that stake in the ground there. And that's what I mean by the EU kind of leading the conversation, even if the SEC doesn't make the same decision, and they may or may not. 
the standard being driven out of Europe will, I think, effectively become the global standard for those businesses working globally. That's really interesting. And when does that land? Well, so January 1st is the first day of the first reporting year for this new legislation to take effect. So then companies have a year to look back at that year of 2024 and report on it. And then each year, more and more companies will fall within the boundary of who's required to comply with CSRD. So we're right at the doorstep of this change. Yeah, that's uh, that's big, isn't it? This is Huge. really big. And, and for so basically for any company putting product or service into the European Union, the EU will have to align with the new standards. That's correct. Wow. How onerous do you, th- what's your hunch? I think that the companies that have been spending time and resources getting their house in order when this was voluntary will not find the transition to be too onerous. I think the companies that have been waiting to see if this would ever have regulatory teeth and are now for the first time trying to figure out where are our utility bills buried are going to find themselves overwhelmed if they don't begin to prepare for that to affect them. How does Net Zero Cloud help in terms of pulling all that together, the process? I get the point that maybe you're a sort of a channel or a gateway to uh, for reporting to happen, but literally is the entire suite of products start from zero? Literally, I mean, does a company go, can a company come to you, Ari, and go, we're in trouble, mm-hmm. um, what do we do? And literally from go to woe, this is what you do? Every day we hear from customers who say that and we bring them on to Net Zero Cloud and they get started on their journey. If you think about what this is designed to do, it's meant to be your single source of truth where all of this data comes together. So you can also get predictions of what's to come, set targets for where you want to go, report out to ever-changing frameworks, figure out not just your carbon emissions, but also your water management and risk, your waste management, your S&G of the ESG, so your social and governance data, for it to all live in one place. And it has to come from many different systems. So that process takes time for a lot of customers. They kind of need to chunk out that work to prepare. And one of the major things coming with CSRD is a materiality assessment requirement. And what that basically means is survey all your stakeholders across the broad landscape of ESG and figure out what is material for your company and report out on what you found. And so we're launching a materiality assessment module in this next release next month as part of the preparation all of our customers need to go through to comply with CSRD. So what would trigger a breach? Give me an example of of what the EU could Mm -hmm. require from companies in terms of the compliance and reporting. Yeah, this is a huge topic, right? What is it going to actually look like for this to have teeth that scares companies? Mm. And what are the potential consequences? Well, in the first instance, shining light on the truth is going to be the standard, right? You're no longer going to be able to hide in the shadows in the global square and not tell the world what the impact of you being in business is. That's a really serious moment for every company to recognize is happening. Downstream from that, especially because of the way the EU is organized, some individual countries have the ability, because of the CSRD, to impose their own penalties on being out of compliance. And the expectation is that there will be some countries who penalize customers that are not in compliance, both with fines and potentially with jail time. And that's why this conversation is shifting so dramatically from where it's been to where it's going. Now, down the road, 
it's probably not just going to be about reporting on what's true. It's probably also going to start to turn into showing that you are decarbonizing, showing results, showing that so you're just part of the change. For, for sure. Absolutely. That's not going to be the first chapter of what compliance looks like. But my expectation as we get deeper and deeper into this emergency globally is that companies are going to be part of filling out forms that tell everyone what they're doing to help and not just what they've done so far, however good, bad, ugly, warts and all, which is really what the first part of this story is all about. So, I mean, I think you're drinking some bubbly, sparkling water, uh, Ari, and it's in a can. Yeah. So the packaging, mm -hmm. for instance, could packaging breach? Yeah. Issues related to what this liquid is consisting of and what it's packaged in is often referred to as product carbon footprinting. In other words, what's the carbon footprint of this can of bubbly water? There are many companies who start the conversation around what we're talking about today with this can in mind. And they might even want to say, this red can is more sustainable than our green can. And we'd like 10% of our sales to move from one kind of can to the other because we've paid some consultants along the way to do a comparison of everything that goes into these two end products. That's called product carbon footprinting. There's been a lot of experimentation in that, in that for a long time. That's very expensive and very resource intensive. And most customers are probably not going to go down that road because of all the SKUs that they have and all the materials they have. The dominant trend seems to be, let's put our arms around the entire global corporation we run and everything that goes into it. That's called enterprise carbon footprinting as opposed to product-based carbon footprinting. So we're going to turn our consumer's attention away from a specific can towards, we are in business. What is the impact of us being in business? And that's where the regulation and the standardization is focusing, the enterprise view rather than the product-specific view. Very interesting, very complicated math. Actually, consumers probably want to see the can part of the data. It's quite a bit less relevant than the big picture for the company. And the math to get to it in an accurate way is much more difficult, much harder to defend, and therefore more susceptible to backlash. And so that's kind of one of the transitions we're seeing from the standpoint of our consumer goods customers, like a Cliff Bar, for example, that's been at this for a long time on Net Zero Cloud with us, a very popular snack bar company Right, so here. it's like a muesli bar that we have in, in Uncle yeah, Toby's. exactly. And so they're thinking about how are these ingredients sourced? What's the footprint of each of these you know, bars? But they're... Each of these bars has its own story, but more to the point, what is Cliff Bar's overall story? And you should, you consumers, you regulators, you investors should look at the entire body of who we are and what we do and how it's going and what direction it's traveling. And that's where our customers are starting to wake up to realize that's where the focus needs to be. That's where everyone okay, is. Okay, but looking. I can, I understand the point, but at the same time, as a consumer, as a person who's buying stuff, mm -hmm you see a lot of product on shelf that's making claims about um, their their environmental or dietary benefits and compliance. And it's the best way to go, okay, that company's got cardboard packaging rather than plastic or whatever. You can make a very quick, at least perceived assessment that they're all right. So to get 
consumers on board, get the masses on understanding at an enterprise level that even, you know, you're a good company, but your products may look like they've got, they're in plastic bottles and they're not recycled. That's, that's sidelined. That's irrelevant. But does it hold some weight with the customer, the, the end user, the consumer? Absolutely. This goes back to the conversation we were having about marketers and IT and sustainability and finance, because there continues to be uh, an opportunity to market particular lines of products, particular products to stamp them or label them or differentiate them either against your competitor or even within your own inventory. What I'm seeing is those kinds of initiatives tend to be driven by the marketing organization and those marketers are more squeamish now because of the backlash they've seen when some of the most sustainability-minded companies have gotten a lot of blowback in the global press. Give us an example. A Unilever, for example, which was often associated with being a global sustainability leader, sought to do this kind of analysis, brand a bunch of their products, and is getting sued in at least one country in Europe for a claim about a particular product being sustainable. And it's made everyone think, especially if they're a much smaller company, what if we tried to do that? We would be quite vulnerable to the blowback there. Maybe we shouldn't try that kind of tactic anymore. Maybe things are changing. So steer away from product. And that's hence why there's from actually- claims, From product claims, from product-specific claims. Right. Exactly. The, the risk is lower at an enterprise level almost. Well, the risk is shifting. The enterprise risk officer, the chief financial officer is thinking about the enterprise level claim and the brand might stand more to lose from making a product specific claim based on math that's harder to defend. ESG, um, this is often one of the thing conversations that we have in Australia is that there seems to be almost a lot of focus on the E, the environmental stuff, social and, and all those other things that in that whole term gets pushed aside a little and, and even in even in terms of diversity, not just in terms of ethnicity, but in terms of, for instance, supplier choice, going for smaller companies and making the social governance in, in CSR that's in supporting smaller and less scaled supply chains. Does this all really come into what we, we're talking about now? Yeah, great question. So we've been talking about the history and the evolution of standardization around carbon emissions reporting. The kinds of data points you're talking about have their own history. There have been many companies that have been collecting data across their supply chain related to things like human trafficking, diversity, doing business with smaller minority-owned businesses for many, many years. In general, what we're seeing as a trend is that those kinds of things aren't rising to the same level of carbon emissions reporting from a regulatory standpoint And that climate is being raised to another level in terms of across every industry, across every country, expectations around reporting. There will continue to be an evolution on those topics. Some of those metrics may even find their way into some of these regulatory requirements. But what we're seeing so far is in the prioritization exercise around these next level uh, developments in regulation, It's the carbon emissions that everyone can agree on. And some of those other things that have historically been important to customers in the ESG space are a little bit different industry to industry, country to country, different segments of of companies. And therefore, they may continue on a windier, more voluntary, more differentiated journey than the standardization we're seeing around climate. Okay, so E is driving the ESG then. E is driving the regulatory part of the story. It's still possible that for some brands, problems with S 
could actually hurt their relationship with consumers. It's still true in 2023 that if you're a brand associated with human trafficking and some sort of story came out, that that could ruin you with a generation of your consumers. But if we're talking about the regulatory expectations, we're not seeing as much emphasis there. So there's a lot of trade that goes between the US and and the EU today. What percentage, what's your hunch on what percentage of US companies that are in Europe supplying or are active doing business in Europe what percentage of companies now do you think would comply with the uh, regulatory standard, which we don't know what it is yet, but is it a 50-50? You think that some companies are really going to have to move quickly and can they, they've got a year, I guess, from January to, to, to sort that out. Can they really change things in that time though? That's a big companies doing all that. Your question is exactly why so many C-level executives are currently freaking out about this topic. <laughs> because this is becoming a totally different conversation. It was not long ago that one or two fairly junior level people knew how to talk about this and almost no one else at the company did. And all of a sudden it's in board meetings, it's in the C-suite, it's in the news. And a lot of companies are waking up to needing to invest, take it seriously, start to prepare because this is revenue and changing. profits, right? This That's is the correct. business, exa- this is the core of the business is being challenged. And I think we're gonna look back and say, This is basically the end of one era and the beginning of another when it comes to the sustainability conversation in the business world. Let's talk about a US or an Australian company. Let's say these new standards come in, these new rules come in January 1. You'd imagine they're going to be, it's going to require a serious amount of effort to comply. Can a large enterprise or even a small one do that in 12 months? Well, the way it's going to be phased in is only the largest enterprises are going to be asked to comply in the first year. And then it's going to phase farther and farther down those segments over a three or four year time period. That's you know how what it's those working thresholds out are? What, what the revenue thresholds I think are? it starts with, you know, a little over a thousand companies, then tens of thousands of companies and on from there starting next year. And so we're mostly having these conversations with global 2000 companies right now. But because of the kinds of things we've been talking about, you can see why so many companies would feel like they need to start to prepare, including if they are key suppliers or customers of these companies that are being impacted right away, who themselves need to go out and ask everyone for information, Mm -hmm. because this is everyone's shared problem. And everyone realizes that new channels of communication and trust and data sharing are about to begin. The, our competition regulator in Australia, the ACCC, has to what you were talking earlier about, have really put some teeth on greenwashing and they're really uh, hunkering down on it. Do you think what you've seen in terms of the greenwashing lawsuits, uh, that whether it's whatever part of the world, are they legit? So when there's greenwashing um, accusations and uh, litigation happening, is it a special interest group that's got an axe to grind or is there legitimate cause for why these cases are being brought? The important conversation being raised around the accusation of greenwashing is show me your math. That's really important. You shouldn't be able to talking point your way through sustainability leadership. You really need to be able to prove it in defensible math. This is a math and physics problem. And auditors are waking up to it and regulators are waking up to it. And for a long time, companies have been able to get away with not having too many eyes on it. That's what's changing. That's why the conversation around greenwashing is very productive. Can it be used? Can it be weaponized and turned against a company that's trying to take the lead on transparency or on decarbonization? Sure, it can, like anything. 
but it's a very helpful part of the conversation of how we globally move forward. Well, let's take the Unilever case in Europe. I mean, you're aware of it, I'm not. So is that sort of on the edges of of claims? I can't speak to the validity of, of one side or the other in that argument. I was just raising it as an example of why there are marketers and companies not as big as Unilever quite nervous about something they might have otherwise thought to do based on the reaction there. Okay, so AI. It's come into everything in Salesforce this year and every platform that that I can see. How's AI going to help net zero? The important point about AI with regards to sustainability is that there's no magic button to transform the global economy to decarbonize. It's hard work. And so when it comes to our customers and what they should expect from us, they should expect that we would like to help them take their own data, their own information that they've publicly shared and turn it into a more efficient experience the next time around. What does that look like? If they've reported to a voluntary framework last year, all of that data sits in that zero cloud, it should be easier to fill out that same form next year. Gen AI can help with that. If they've released a bunch of data as part of their public filings, if they've released a bunch of information as part of their sustainability report, our AI co-pilot should be able to help accelerate the production, creation, evolution of those data points the next time around. Okay. That's what we'll it's focus on play, for the yeah. February release. There are lots more things AI can do when we think about emissions factors, when we think about in-app guidance, when we think about content, when we think about decarbonization pathway recommendations. But there's not going to be an easy button to take yourself from a large emitter to a net zero company because AI was here to save the day. We need to be very careful with our expectations around how climate change can be solved with this phenomenon and really try to focus on the use cases that can assist us in getting there faster. Well, Ari Alexander, that was a super fascinating conversation. And I think we should have another one in, in a couple of months and find out some more stuff. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's more. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 audio edition to listen for free. Listener.